Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky political news and politics from a constitutional and conservative viewpoint. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter, and welcome to Kentucky's only daily radio show slash podcast that comes at you, giving you those news, those headlines that break down from a constitutional and conservative perspective. You can, as always, catch the Andrew Cooperwriter show every day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. on WZXI, everywhere else on Facebook and YouTube, Rumble, um, Twitter, you know, all those places at 1 p.m. Also, you can catch it on all major podcasting platforms, including uh, Spotify, Apple, iHeart, many, many others, all, all the platforms you can think of. And as always, you can reach out to the show by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. I thank you all so, so much for joining us. And without Further ado, let's dig into it. You know, yesterday I was talking about how our Kentucky state legislature has a problem with just spending too much money. That's all they do seemingly is spend money, spend more and more, despite us having a conservative majority. Our budgets just go up every year. And in that story, I talked about how they were doing a uh, remodeling of the House chambers, doing an updating to it. And they were spending nearly a quarter of a billion, $250 million dollars to do it. And in that process, they decided that it would be super duper uber wise for them to build a temporary chamber because for some reason, even though they're only in session for 30 days, need that chamber for exactly 30 days, uh, they can't seem to be able to work that around the construction schedule. They can't find a tent. They can't find a gymnasium floor. They can't find another room to hold the the business in, they have to do it there in, in a chamber. So that way a new chamber must be built for those 30 days. Ridiculous. I know. And many of us obviously up in arms, but I started actually wondering about that cost, 250 million quarter of a billion. And I was reminded, you know, the, the capital itself, including the capital building and the grounds and landscaping around it. Uh, at the time it was completed in, uh, was it 1902, three or so? It cost uh, $2 million, which in, in modern times adjusted for inflation <coughs> would be right around $178 million-ish. If you're to adjust for inflation, $178 million-ish uh, cost-wise. And then the annex, which was built in 1952, well, that cost $6 million to build which, you know, adjusted for inflation would be about $100 million in today's money. So we've got the entire annex building, $100 million. You have the entire capital building, $178 million. That brings the grand total to $278 million-ish or so, uh, is what our capital, entire capital building costs to build in an in, in annex, costs to build in today's money. But yet, but yet... They're renovating the grounds there. They're renovating the property. And just for the house chamber portion alone, for some reason, our legislature has saw fit to spend $250 million on it. 
way too much money, way too much money. In my humble opinion, based upon what you spent to build the place initially, I certainly have my concerns. Also, I wanted to uh, touch on, I know once again last week I, I touched on this about voter turnout and the election that occurred. I felt it was worthwhile to talk about this again, mainly because on my social media there, on my Facebook, on yesterday's show, uh, you know, there's some comments from some people talking about how, you know, clearly Bashir must have cheated. There's no way the attorney general uh, got, and, and of course this stuff was started by some of these election um, questioners. I'm not going to call them deniers. I'm not denying election took place. And, you know, I myself concerned about election integrity. I've talked about uh, obviously issues I have concerned with in 2020 election, but in this most recent election, the, the go-to for many people is that of course it has to have been stolen because that is the easier thing to come to than to figure out what really happened there. And, and amongst that, these, these claims that it must be stolen, the evidence they point to, which is really just feelings because it's not factual, is that there's no way, and this is what someone said, a Republican voted for a Republican and attorney general and then a Democrat governor I call BS. Now, first off, there has to be, just by sheer chances, definitely voters that fell into that category. But as I've said time and time again, it is a big assumption, and this is the problem. See, everybody's looking at that 60% of the vote that the attorney general got and then the 45% of the vote that Cameron got and sit there and say, why did all these Republicans not vote for Cameron? But that, that assumes that it was Republicans who didn't vote for Cameron and not Democrats who down ticket didn't vote for the Republicans. And I covered this at length, but we do have a little bit more data. Uh, one of those pieces of data kind of point to what I'm talking about here is that in, in, Last week's election, it looks like 80% of those who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 turned out to vote, but only 50% of Trump voters turned out to vote. And I've said time and time again that uh, I believe that it wasn't Republicans. Once again, voting down-ticket Republican, up-ticket Bashir. It was Democrats voting Bashir, then down-ticket Republican. And so I mentioned this in the comments, and of course... They say that these people don't exist, that Democrats have told us they'd never vote for a Republican. But, you know, don't confuse your liberal neighbor in urban areas for your all Democrats that there are out there. And don't confuse the far left crazies marching in the street for actual terrorist organizations as those who represent all Democrats in the state. See, anybody who's traveled the state at length and something I've done politically, obviously running for state treasurer, you know that there are large, large amounts of rural voters that vote for Republicans but are registered Democrats. In fact, you have entire counties where registration will be 35% Republican, the rest Democrat, and yet they have a Republican judge executive, Republican magistrates, Republican sheriffs in situations. They have Republicans in those positions all the time. And that is because, and this is what you have to understand, is that the Democrat Party is so far left that even people who they themselves are registered Democrats uh, uh, don't hold them in very high regard and don't find them to be very 
very convincing to vote for. But why is it so important that I touch this? Why is it important to me that you understand this? And that is because if you believe that every election you vote in that doesn't go the right way you want it to uh, is a stolen election, you're letting people off the hook and you're encouraging people to not turn out and vote. You're going to continue to have less people voting, but also you're going to let people like Cameron and others get off the hook by simply saying, well, Bashir stole it. That's all that happened. You're ignoring the fact that Cameron had a terrible campaign. You're ignoring, you're ignoring the fact that, you know, people like Terry Carmack and Scott Jennings are horrible at advising in difficult races. They only know how to win uh, uh, races that don't get very much attention or races where you have an incumbent and you can spend a lot of money. That's all they quite understand. And if we continue to let these people off the hook, if we let the fact that this campaign, the Cameron campaign was awfully run and had been from the start, and we let that be the conversation, well, nothing will change. We won't get better candidates. We won't get people who message on conservative issues and then do conservative things. Now we're going to continue to get awful and awful candidates that continue to lose because everybody who wants to point out that people aren't turning out to vote because you're not inspiring them, those people, well, well, they get drowned out and they get, and those excuses uh, get demolished when people get to claim it was just obviously election theft. Now, do weird things happen in elections all the time? Absolutely. This was a very close election. I'd absolutely say we need to look at it, but it's not even close. It's not even close. And to, and to put it in perspective, I actually, I want to put this in perspective of how not close this election was between Bashir and Cameron. Uh, but in order to do that, I need to go over that after the break, running up against the clock. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics and news from a constitutional and conservative viewpoint. We'll see you after the break. And you're back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Before the break, I was talking about, um, you know, just, just general some data and people not liking the outcome, claiming the election stolen. I understand the, the distrust for elections. I do. I hear you. Um, but I wanted to point out something to, to put this in perspective, right? Because a very close election, as I said, let's take a look at it. Let's see if there is any kind of uh, issues going on here. But it wasn't. The separation of votes was about 60 or 70,000 votes. And, and to put that in perspective, let's go back to the 2020 election. Let's look at all the impropriety that happened there. You got the Hunter Biden laptop story. You had questionable vote tallying uh, systems at night that suddenly shut down, randomly reopened. You had uh, ballot massive ballot harvesting operations. You had laws changed, all in order to affect the outcome of this election. Now think about all of that, okay? You think about all that? Okay. All that was done and Trump still only lost by about, now it's in a few key states, it's stretched stretch across you know, three or four states, but he only lost by less than 100,000. He lost by about the same amount of votes that Cameron lost to Bashir on in a governor's race in Kentucky is how many votes that Trump lost, uh, quote unquote, lost to Biden on in the entire nation in a few key states, maybe three or four states. So think of all that motion, all that action, all that hoopla that went on to get the same amount of vote win by across three states, four states that we see 
in Kentucky in one election in a governor's race. You would see just a lot more. You wouldn't have just a voting location up in Louisville that had a gas leak in the middle of the day, so they extended their hours for 30 more minutes. You wouldn't see a, a another location in Louisville that, well, it is Louisville, so, you know, of course, they got a crime problem, and due to unsafe situation, due to crime ongoing problem there, police involvement, they had to shut down a voting location, extend voting for 30 minutes on a safety lockdown. You know, you wouldn't have just one or two of those, you would have so many issues across the state. It would be impossible for even very middle of the road Republicans to ignore because that's how much would have to go into getting this done. And my evidence of that is the 2020 election. And so I don't want you sitting there and I don't like people once again, getting these individuals that ran a terrible campaign off the hook, giving them an excuse, hold them accountable for who they are, demand change as far as who the, the uh, uh, Republicans in this state hold in high regard, who they listen to, demand real conservatives, but don't give them an easy out by, by blaming it on election fraud. Don't give them that. They lost because they didn't turn out Republicans. They lost because they're bad at their job. That's it. That's it. It was bad candidate, bad, bad. Ma the candidate was okay. It was bad management around him and the candidate not managing his own campaign. So speaking of also things that I covered on Monday, I covered the Anderson County Schools situation uh, regarding the Briscoe's daughter, whose guidance counselor um, tried to basically uh, get her to emancipate herself and file CPS complaints uh, and record herself arguing with her parents, um, try to get CPS complaints filed, try to get their daughter, their 16-year-old daughter taken away from them so they could live with her in a base in their basement. Um, all because she said, well, the, the daughter was um, gay and the parents were being too mean to her over it. Well, there was a school board meeting in Anderson County uh, where it went over even fire, fire marshal allowances. They had to uh, spill out into um, the outside of the meeting in order to hold everybody there. And finally... Now, you've heard about this story from me. Maybe you've seen this story online. Maybe you've seen a YouTube videos passed around. Maybe you've seen those things. But what you haven't seen is a major news station covering it. Well, we do finally have a news station covering it. We had WKYT with their top story. Let's see how they covered it. Let's see if we can feel comfortable that uh, they really cut to the heart of the problem. Let's, let's watch. Hundreds of people filled the Anderson County School Board meeting. They're calling for action against a high school employee. The family of a student alleges the high school employee had an inappropriate relationship with their daughter, who was a junior at the time. The easy move is to sweep this under the rug. The families of this community obviously are asking you to be courageous, to step up as our representatives and do the right thing. Brown and Stacey Briscoe say they learned about what they call an inappropriate relationship between their daughter and a high school employee. 
They say their daughter sought counseling and later began to text and eventually move in for a period of time with the school employee. Briscoe says after finding texts between his daughter and the employee, they reported them to the school district but say no action was ever taken. The district's attorney says they cannot comment on ongoing personnel matters. The process is not set up for any of you all to leave tonight with the satisfaction of what I think a lot of you have on your mind because the board can't take action. Hundreds of community members came to Monday night's meeting asking the board to address these allegations, expressing their anger and frustration as the meeting became heated several times throughout. Of the dozens who spoke asking for action, one person did speak out calling this a witch hunt of the school employee. We are asking you to demonstrate courage by doing whatever it takes to make Anderson County school system a safe place for students and their families. The school board did tell this crowd that they would listen tonight, but would not make any comments on the matter. Part of the Kentucky Education Reform Act in 1990 was to remove the political pressure, this type of local pressure to make um, spur of the moment on a whim decisions about the operation of public school districts. Superintendent Sheila Mitchell did not comment tonight, but she did release a statement six days ago. She says she is not legally allowed to release the content or outcome of an investigation unless the parents of the student sign a release. She says these investigations have legal proceedings that are followed. In Anderson County, Grayson Passmore, WKYT. All right, so you heard how they reported it. You see, the, the media is in an interesting and difficult situation here uh, for for the last year or so uh they have reported on senate bill 150 and a bill that addresses uh grooming and the lgbtq uh crazy gender theory sex theory processes being pushed onto children in our k-12 schools and a part of that reporting stations like w KYT and others have really bought into this idea that that wasn't happening in the schools. They would regularly seek out and find anybody they could to claim this simply wasn't happening in Kentucky schools. They need it not to happen in the schools because if it was happening in the schools, well, then that would require them to be honest and report the fact that, well, Senate Bill 150 was needed and that goes against their personal beliefs. Maybe not the beliefs of the reporters, I don't know, but at least the beliefs of those running the stations, they don't want to see bills like that pass. They, they like to run cover for this liberal agenda. So they now have a situation with a guidance counselor taking a daughter against the parents' wishes, having her see the girl that she was quote unquote engaged in a uh, possibly gay relationship with, despite the parents saying, Hey, look, you're not to be dating, bringing her around there. You, you all maybe remember the story once again from Monday and, and doing that type of behavior um, and undermining the parents and, and texting over hundreds of text messages with the daughter outside of school hours, uh, uh, dozens of phone calls, outside of school hours with the daughter, all about trying to get her away from her parents. That's, But WKYT can't report upon that. Instead, what did they say? They said what the parents call an inappropriate relationship. Now, nowhere in that reporting did the words come out 
that their daughter was engaged in uh, the, the guidance counselor was pushing their daughter towards a gay relation. It didn't really cover anything. You could listen to that story and you might think you could think maybe they were engaged in a sexual relationship with the daughter. Maybe they were just uh, engaged in some kind of, you know, inappropriate relationship in the sense of uh, um, they were talking and, and grooming in that way uh, where they engage in a relationship where uh, it was just too friendly. What, what's, the, what's the details here? They don't tell you. They can't tell you. You can tell by how they covered it. They can't be honest. They can't be honest at all. In fact, even when you read their article, the way they kind of framed that, you heard them in there, they framed up a, a, there was one person who spoke out saying that this was a witch hunt. Everybody else, of course, was like, hey, you need to do something about this guidance counselor. You need to address this problem. And so when they, they said that, they said there was one person who, out of the dozens who spoke asking for action, one person did speak out, calling this a witch hunt of the school employee. Then immediately they cut to Brad Briscoe, the daughter, the daughter's father, making a statement that sounds like it came out of the one person, possibly, if you aren't paying heavy attention. In fact, when they wrote the article, this is uh, that accompanies the video. This is what the article says. Of the dozens who spoke asking for action, one person did speak out, calling this a witch hunt of the school employee. We're asking you to demonstrate courage by doing whatever it takes to make Anderson County a safe place for students and their families, Briscoe said. The board then did tell this crowd they would listen tonight, but they'd not make any comments on the matter. That's their statement. They run it together in such a way you would think the one person who did speak out, that's what they said. They want to make it a safe place for everyone. But no, that was the Briscoes who said that. They mentioned someone speaking out. They don't ever tell you what that person says. They don't show you video of that person saying anything. They do show you video right after that of Briscoe saying something that if you want somebody to call this a witch hunt and be speaking out against it, that is what you would want them to say, almost like they're on purpose trying to confuse you. Well, we have seen some forward and positive momentum to this issue, issue going on at Raceland Worthington School that we could be seeing in our state legislature. We'll have that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. We'll be back right after this short break. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics and news from a constitutional and conservative viewpoint. As a reminder, if you want to reach out to the show, give us your questions, your comments, your concerns. Maybe I'll read it on air feel free to email us at info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. So before the break, I was talking about uh, the Anderson County issue. A lot of you have heard about it. I covered it on Monday. They had their school board meeting. Well, um, obviously WKYT, first person actually covered that, covered it without giving you a whole lot of information. Well, we are seeing though what could be some possibility of forward momentum out of our state legislature. Since I covered that story, I've talked to a few legislators and um, there is some support for Bill to go ahead and, and address this issue as well as the issue going on at the Raceland Worthington School. Some of you may remember me uh, telling you all about that. There was a situation there of a uh, reportedly a teacher um, grooming uh, young girls as they were freshmen in high school. So then that way, as soon as they graduated high school uh, and were over 18, he could then engage in a sexual relationship with them, something that is awful and disgusting, but not technically illegal. And what that problem 
And this problem here that the Briscoes are dealing with in Anderson County have in common is the educators, school counselors, school staff communicating and contacting their minor students uh, on their personal devices without alerting or keeping the parents in the loop. And so it's quite clearly that our state legislature could come forward passing a law stating that schools are not to be communicating with the uh, uh, students without copying in the parents in the communication. No coach, no teacher, no guidance counselor can be communicating, especially outside of school hours, with uh, a students without the parents being in the loop. So if you're a coach and you want to text uh, one of your, your, your players or members of your team about something, well, you better be sending that text copying in their parents. If you're wanting to call them, call a, a student after school hours, well, you better call their parent first and then ask to speak to them so that way the parent's aware of what's going on. You, we have plenty of apps out there, things like Team Snap, Class Dojo, tons of things. There's no good reason for an educator or school employee to ever be reaching out to a minor without the parent's knowledge. And if there is a good reason, such as abuse, well, you better be calling CPS then. And so I've reached out to a few legislators, talked to a few different grassroots groups, and it does look like there is an appetite for getting this done. So as that moves forward, I will keep you all in the loop. And when that bill gets proposed and out there, I will let you know so you can be encouraging your state legislators to sign on as sponsors onto this bill and get it moving forward because there's no good argument against it. There is literally none at all. What are you going to try to do? Are you with me that teachers somehow need to be contacting minors without their parents' knowledge for what? Yeah, it's not something that's very easy to certainly protect and argue against. Argue against, certainly. I got some other news. Uh, Senator Schickel out of Northern Kentucky announced that he will not be running for re-election. So filing deadline is early January. Um, it is right now November uh, 15th. So let's see, we've got about six weeks until the filing deadline, seven weeks until the filing deadline. This announcement's pretty big. I mean, one, Schickel is one of the more uh, uh, conservative members of our state Senate. I mean, if I have to be honest, our state Senate... Our state house isn't amazing. It's got some leadership issues. Clearly, it's got some other problems going on. But our state Senate is atrocious. Um, it's just awful. It is made up of a whole lot of spineless uh, people. There are a few good senators. Don't get me wrong. But literally, there's a joke in the house that the Senate is where good bills go to die. Um, and we've seen this time and time again. You can see this with bills such as, you know, Matt Lockett had an anti-CRT bill that was strong, that was solid, that was saying that uh, uh, schools could not teach students that one race was inherently better than the other. A very good bill, a good law to pass that would deal with a lot of this critical race theory nonsense we see going on in our schools. A lot of nonsense going on with the schools. At some point, we're going to have to address that. But, um, you know, and he, he put forward a great bill. This is when everybody wanted the, the legislature and schools to, to deal with and to stop teaching this kind of critical race theory nonsense to kids. And so instead of passing the great bill Matt Lockett had proposed, uh, what we saw instead was the Senate put forward a bill that did nothing, 
um, but they could somehow sell it as a CRT bill or say it was dealing with CRT. So of course the liberal media just freaked out about it and made everybody believe it was addressing CRT. Meanwhile, all it did was require the teaching of certain documents. So to deal with critical race theory, this teaching that, um, you know, uh, uh, people who aren't white need to be treated differently than white people in order for them to succeed, uh, which is a bigotry and racism of low expectations. So instead of just outright outlawing that kind of teaching, that's what Matt Lockett's bill would have done. The Senate decided uh, to go ahead and just pass a law that said you had to teach certain historical documents such as the Gettysburg Address, the Magna Carta, uh, other documents and items that, quite frankly, I thought were already taught in schools, shows how much I know, but um, I think they actually already were. It was just to illustrate how little that the bill actually did, but yet it was paraded out there as a critical race theory bill, paraded out there by, of course, those who want to do nothing and get away with it. Now, why did they do this? Why were they so determined to get away with nothing uh, and do nothing? Well, because that's what it seems like our state Senate is determined to do. So Schickles says he isn't running for re-election, certainly opens up some opportunities. Now, two schools of thought here. Um, you know, there's some people out there who say, look, if we want conservatives, if we want legislators who are actually going to cut the budget, not spend more, keep in mind, that's what keeps going on. If you're sitting there thinking, Andrew, these are all Republicans are great people. There's nothing for us to worry about. You are mistaken in a state like Kentucky, where uh, you either live in a blue district or a red district, you will register. If you want to be in power, you register whatever party you need to in order to win, and then you fake it on everything that you do other than the things you feel like you absolutely have to do in order to stay in office. And the things that most of these people have to do to stay in office is to serve their donor class, to serve those corporations that are cutting them the checks that they believe help them get reelected. They, do, they don't feel like they have to necessarily do the things that their voters want them to do until we put their backs up against the wall. And so striking for how to figure out how to do nothing and something at the same time is how this lackluster critical race theory bill got passed. And that came from the Senate. Senate killed... Uh, bills to ban vaccine mandates. The Senate's killed bills to ban mass mandates in schools. Um, the Senate is just an awful place here in Kentucky. So with Schickle leaving, it gives us an opportunity. One, it gives an opportunity to put in another very conservative person uh, to continue to fight the good fight up there in that Senate. But also, it depends on who decides they want to run for their seat. If somebody like Kim Mosier, who's an absolute uh, uh, very liberal, liberal Republican uh, that is out of that district area, I believe she lives in that area, I could be mistaken, but she could live in that area. And if she decides, for an example, Representative Mosier, that she wants to run for the Senate to be amongst the other liberal Republicans because she doesn't like how conservative the House is getting, well, that gives more opportunity for the conservatives in the House to win more seats there. Um, and the closer and more seats they gather, the more opportunity they're going to have uh, to be able to really kind of direct some of the legislation going on in the state. Incredibly important stuff. So Schickel not running for re-election again. Senator Schickel in Northern Kentucky. Important, important stuff. Um, coming up after this, uh, something smells in Lexington, and it's not just the sewer system. Uh, then the UAW in Louisville, they don't like 
um, the plan. They voted against the settlement plan with Ford. We'll cover that. Um, we'll have that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky political uh, politics and news from constitutional and conservative viewpoint. We'll see you all back here in just a few short minutes. And you're back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky political news and commentary from a constitutional and conservative viewpoint in Lexington, Kentucky. Something smells. Apparently the sewer system and water treatment uh, facilities aren't getting the job done. It smells really, really bad in there. And uh, apparently the mayor is determined to fix it. And she's determined to fix it, not by actually fixing it, but instead by spending $75,000 on a consultant to come in and tell them how to make their waste treatment facility less stinky. Um, apparently, we had to pay $75,000 to a consultant not, not to fix it. You know, if you're saying, look, we're coming in to fix this problem, we're going to spend 75 grand on that. That, that, that's one thing we can have that conversation, but you know, Lexington has had a sewer treatment facilities and water treatment facilities for, for some time, quite some time. Um, you would hope that the people in charge of that would be, uh, at least experts in that class. You would hope people aren't being put in charge of treating our sewer and waste uh, with a lack of experience. So I wouldn't be necessarily shocked if that was the case. And I wouldn't be shocked by it because, well, as we covered, I think a week or two ago, Lexington City Council made it clear that they want to prioritize hiring people based on their gender and skin color rather than their experience. So I wouldn't be shocked if, we find out that the person in charge of this problem is somebody with zero experience, but they identify as the right gender and have the right skin pigment in order to be hired for a job that now we have to hire, spend $75,000 on a consultant to figure out how to do their job better. It is shocking to me. It's just shocking to me that with everything we have there, we can't uh, with all the experience with, with the people in charge of, we still need to shell out this kind of dough to solve one of the basic problems that you have when you're treating wastewater and sewers, and that is the smell of them. Just shocking to me. Also as well, uh, we have out of Louisville, the truck plant, uh, the, the United Auto Workers Union that represents the uh, Louisville Ford truck plants has voted to turn down accepting the contract that was already negotiated by UAW with Ford that they put forward to a vote, they have voted it down. Now, it will most likely um, still succeed because, of course, these contracts are decided on a nationwide issue. And as long as a you know, certain majority of uh, union workers vote to accept the contract, the contract will be accepted. So the chances that it goes down are slim, but it could still go down. We know we're seeing GM's contract having some trouble as well. But why did these people in Louisville turn down the contract? Well, there's reasons why the workers did, and we're going to kind of go over what they had to say, and then we'll go over why did the UAW even then propose this contract and put it forward in the first place? So first, they first, uh, they've got an issue with the fact that instead of getting a 40% pay raise like they demanded, 
Um, they would only be getting a 25% pay raise over four years, as well as other benefits increase. But these benefits and, and, and this hourly pay on benefits would go on top of this, but the hourly pay would end up being an average somewhere right around about $40 an hour. But that isn't enough. Um, in fact, one of the uh, UAW people that voted against it said that, well, this isn't, um, this just brings us up to where we should have been because we decided not to take a pay raise during contract negotiations during the Great Recession. And so therefore, uh, uh, we deserve to get an even bigger raise than what we should have gotten back then because, you know, we deserve to be rewarded uh, for working through the Great Recession instead of the reward just being you got to keep your job and they could continue to operate. Um, but they say, no, we need paid even more than $40 an hour. On top of that, um, it's funny. Another person made a comment about they voted no on it because it has no benefits, no health insurance after, uh, um, you know, after you're done there, you retire, you get your, your retirement plan. They already have together for you. Um, and that's all you get. You're, you're not getting anybody hired after 2007, no longer retires getting free healthcare. They can get healthcare. They have to pay a little bit extra for it. Um, but they no longer can get that free healthcare in their retirement. And one of the comments made by the person was, it's like, you're working here. And then when you retire, you just quit. That's literally what he said. It's like, it's like, you just quit. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. I mean, you do get a retirement. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, when you leave a company, um, you, you, you no longer work for that company and the company doesn't typically continue to compensate you, but you know, whatever. It, my point about this though, is these UAW workers are just, obviously the majority of them are upset over this contract, but I called this from the very beginning. I told, I, I said it right here on the show. I said the UAW leadership, the auto workers unions, leadership. They really only wanted one thing. They knew 40% raises were untenable. They knew that in actuality Ford didn't have the money uh, for those 40% raises. And even now we're going to see a massive increase, of course, in vehicle prices, most likely due to this. They already knew they didn't have it. Instead, instead, uh, what they wanted really was for them to guarantee that the battery plants would be unionized. I covered this agnosium at length in episodes talking about uh, the battery plant and the unionization process that uh, the auto workers union is trying to get at the battery plant and why this spells so much disaster for Ford into the future, because it means Ford couldn't compete with non-unionized shops like Tesla. And so they want to make sure that those electric vehicle plants are unionized. That's all the union wanted. Um, because of course they want power and they want to be in control. And if Ford has plants that aren't unionized, well, that's a threat to them. So that's what they really wanted. And so they knew they wouldn't negotiate any of the 40%, any of the compensation package until Ford first said, okay, to that. Then they said they'd be willing to negotiate on the rest of it. I'm saying then they said it. It's not like I necessarily know I wasn't in the room. I just called it at the time. That is what's really going on here. They are putting untenable options on the table to force them to unionize their electric vehicle battery plants. And, and what does this mean to us, a consumer? So maybe you agree with unions and that's okay that you think that way, but you have to understand that these costs get passed on to the consumer. Ford, uh, before this, was only making a 2.3, 2.4% net profit. And this will just further cut into that. And, and it's 
hard for them to continue to operate at those levels and stay above water. In fact, a lot of the reasons why uh, some of the other shops went underwater was because of their high union compensation contracts. And so this will get, obviously gets passed on to the consumer. And that's what results in things uh, like this. Toyota is offering a baseline, no frills, brand new truck for $10,000 in uh, economically disadvantaged uh, countries. So basically Toyota has found a way to make a truck for $10,000 brand new. I mean, keep in mind, the cheapest vehicle brand new here in the United States is over $20,000. And that's not a truck, that's a car. Meanwhile, Toyota can make brand new trucks in other places for 10 grand. Some of the things these trucks don't have are things like airbags and other safety equipment that I'm sure would be required. But even throwing that in there, even if that made the truck now cost, let's say $12,000 or so, it still could never be built in America because it's the labor costs. The labor costs drive it up significantly higher. And then that leaves the rest of us, the consumer, having to pay for it. And, you know, normally, obviously, you pay for uh, a company to deliver you a service. No real complaint there. That's just what happens. But right now, what we're seeing in vehicles is particularly egregious. We're seeing skyrocketing prices. New trucks are $60,000, the amount you would pay, you know, 10 years ago for uh, something like a Nissan GTR or, or a, a high-end sports car like that is now what you're paying for a pretty basic run-of-the-mill truck. And these types of decisions are just going to continue to jack up those prices. And in turn, like we said, we see the UAW there in Louisville voting this down. It will never be enough for them either. They'll always want more. There's always some way they're not being fairly compensated. Um, you know, and like I said, maybe you like unions. I don't mind unions particularly. I do mind the fact that companies, if companies did the same thing unions did, they'd be put out of business uh, by the government. If companies all banded together to say, this is how much we're going to pay someone. Um, and, and that's how much we're paying them. We're not backing off of that. They would be uh, attacked by the federal government in a heartbeat. However, when you, the workers all gather together in an industry and say, this is how much you pay us, or we're not working and nobody's working or else we're not, you, you're not going to, we refuse to do anything for you. And you can't, we're going to intimidate and attack scabs back in the day uh, when that was a thing. And nowadays, of course, you're in a contract with them. And so once they start to, to protest, you can't go higher than new people. That's part of the contract. So we can put you out of business, but you can't stay firm together uh, in the same way that that's not allowed. That's illegal. I don't think that's very fair. You can hate me for that all you want to. Um, but you know, just doesn't seem right. Anyways, well, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Coop Writer Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining us. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 9 a.m. Uh, and otherwise, have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you here very shortly.